us to the book of Hebrews as we are continuing to work our way through not only the book of Hebrews but chapter 11. We've kind of slowed down to a little a crawl, which is not a bad thing to do from time to time in Scripture, and looking at the the evidences of faith, these hallmarks of faith that have uh, that we find in these great people in our history. Uh, there's many listed here, but two really stand out in this chapter. I mean, if you've been reading chapter 11 uh, these past several weeks, you realize that two figures loom large in chapter 11 of Hebrews because they loom large in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people, and, and those are Abraham and Moses. The most time is taken up in this chapter by these two immense figures. So it makes sense that the author would spend that kind of ink on these two, describing how they walked by faith. Moses' example is especially important to the author of Hebrews. We say that again. Moses is especially important to the author of Hebrews because Moses, in a way, gets at the problem that he is trying to correct in the people he's writing to. If you remember, the whole book of Hebrews is written to a a group of of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, that that were converted about 15 or 20 years ago. And in that time, they've gone under persecution. And once again, they're under intense persecution. And they are wobbling in their faith. They're, They're actually considering turning their back on Christ and going back to Judaism. In other words, going back to Moses. And so it makes sense that he would spend some time showing these people how, how Moses didn't walk by works. He walked by faith. It was by faith that Moses walked. And so he is, in fact, kind of saying to his audience, as he's saying to us, but he's saying to that audience, if you want to follow Moses, you're actually going to follow Moses right to the foot of the cross. So look with me at verse 23 in chapter 11 and following. Verse 23, God's word says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Father God, help me to preach your word to your people at this time. Help me to be faithful to your scriptures. Help me to... to tell them what the scripture says, to explain that to them, and to apply it. 
to your children well. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing to look at these hallmarks of true faith in chapter 11. We come to Moses in the Exodus. If you remember, and it helps me a lot of times to know what a chapter, the outline of a chapter is. And and you remember a couple weeks ago that this chapter really follows the Bible in in describing faith. The first two verses of, of chapter 11 define what faith is, right? And we looked at that several weeks ago. And then verses 3 through 8 are really looking at the faith of people in what we call our prehistory, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And there we looked at people such as Abel and Enoch and Noah and what their faith tells us. But then the next section is, is about Abraham and the patriarchs. And that really, the, the author of Hebrews is looking at and, and, and taking examples from Genesis 12 through 50, the rest of the book of Genesis, focusing primarily on Abraham, but also the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob. And the end of the chapter, verses 30 to 40, is really a distillation of the rest of Scripture. He's just kind of, uh, there's a litany there of different people who have lived throughout uh, redemptive history, and we're going to draw lessons from that. But here, he's drawing lessons by faith, looking at the hallmarks of faith of people in the Exodus, the book of Exodus. That's what these these verses are really looking at. And from beginning to end, the author starts with Moses' parents, and how their faith created fearlessness. Faith creates fearlessness. And we see this in verses 23 and 27. Faith creates fearlessness. Oswald Chambers said this, It is the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in your heart is when we do not get into panics. Being afraid is part of the human condition. That's part of what we see in, in right after the fall in Genesis 3, right? They, they were afraid and they hid. There was shame and there was fear of God. It's part of your flesh. Sometimes we even pursue fear, don't we? On Friday night, I just watched a, a scary movie with uh, my son, Jack. He wanted to watch a scary movie, and so we watched this movie, Signs, by M. Night Shyamalan. Scary movie about, uh, about aliens. And, and several times in that movie, you know, I turned out the lights, and we got the ambiance going, right? You know, we're, we're kind of pursuing fear. I want to be scared, you know? And, and a couple times, there were those jump scares that you get. That movie was supposed to be scary. We wanted to be scared. But what Chambers points to and what Moses' parents display is that one of the hallmarks of true faith is it creates this fearlessness when you should be afraid. It creates this fearlessness when you should be afraid. If you look at verse 23, the parents of Moses, it says there that when Moses was born... His parents hid them because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' parents were not afraid of Pharaoh's edict. They went against his edict of killing all the babies. And that's a hallmark of true faith. If you remember in Exodus 1, the story, 
Pharaoh became afraid of the swelling population of his slave of his slave population, the Hebrews. He became afraid that they might overtake them. They might uh, team up with one of their enemies and, and actually conquer them. So he put out an edict that the midwives, if you remember, were to take the newborn males and they were to throw them into the Nile as crocodile food. That was his way of population control. And if you remember the story, the the midwives disobeyed the king's edict and did not do that. And so the king upped the ante. He he made an edict. He said, all male Hebrew children under the age of two are to be killed. And that's the age in which, verse 23, we enter in. So Amram and Jochebed did not fear Moses, did not fear Pharaoh as they should. The parents hid Moses because they knew he had a special purpose. Most of the commentators agree that this word beautiful because they hid him because he was beautiful is just saying they hid him because they knew he had a special purpose. We don't know, we're not told in scripture how they knew, but they, they knew he had a special purpose, so they hid him. And so they did not fear Pharaoh's edict as they should have. Their natural reaction should have been fear. And if they'd been found out, they would have been killed. Fear of disobeying the most powerful man in the world. Actually, if you really think of it, maybe the most powerful man who had ever lived. Pharaoh. They Fearing for their lives if they were discovered. But their faith gave them a fearlessness. Their faith gave them a fearlessness. We see this same fearlessness that's born in Moses in, in, in verse uh, 27. If you look there, Moses wasn't afraid of the, of the Pharaoh either. It says, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. First time Moses left, Pharaoh wanted to kill him. Second time Moses left, he took the slave population with him. And it was faith that gave Moses the fearlessness to do that. And that's exactly what faith does, brothers and sisters. It creates a fearlessness in the face of something that you should naturally be afraid of. Now, Christianity does not create rabid anti-government revolutionaries. It never has. It never has. We are commanded to live under the authority of the government that God has put over us, good and bad. But when the governments call Christians to do things that go against God's word, that's when we're called to stand. That's the line in the sand. We see this several times in the book of Acts in the very, very birthing of the church, right? In chapter 4 of, chapter of, of the book of Acts, we see Peter and John that are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And they are commanded to not preach about this Christ anymore. Don't preach about this Christ anymore. And you know what Peter says to them? He stands in front of the Sanhedrin powerful, authoritative religious body of, of Israel. 
He says, says the stones you, you builders have rejected have become the capstone. How did he get the courage to do that? He said, salvation is found in no one else, no name under heaven that is given by man by which we must be saved. How did he have the fearlessness to say those things standing there? Just in the very next chapter when the apostles are preached for preaching Christ again, the angel releases them and what do they do? They go directly to the temple and they start preaching Christ again. The exact thing that they said not to do. Where did they get this fearlessness? Peter, when they're brought back in after they, they, they can't believe they did this, so they send the guard to bring them back in and, and they say, what are you doing? And Peter says those, that, that line that we should hold on to. We must obey God rather than man. How did they do it? Same way, same way Moses did it. Looking at the invisible God. Look at verse 27. At the end of that it says, he, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he set his sights on the invisible God. By faith, he kept in mind a greater power. And that is how faith creates fearlessness in all his believers. That's how faith creates fearlessness in you and me. Whether it's fear of evangelizing, anybody? You know, I was just talking to a brother earlier today, and he was, he was you know, saying, I had a hard time finding a way in to talking to this person about Christ, and I didn't. Whether it's fear of being labeled homophobic, if you speak out biblically about gay marriage and transgender and culture, we fear culture. Whether it's standing for what God says about premarital sex for those of you who are in high school, that's hard to do. Whether it's fear of standing for life in the face of abortion. Whatever fear you have, and there are a lot of fears to have, Fearlessness comes by keeping Christ and his power on our mind by faith. That's where the fearlessness comes from. It is said that Napoleon, before he went into battles, would bring each of his generals in, and he would be sitting on his throne, and he would have the generals stand before his throne for a prolonged minutes of silence, and he would just stare at them. And then without saying a word, he would dismiss them. Why would he do something like that? I think he's brilliant. He did this so that when hard times came in the battles and the fighting and they were overcome with fear, they would remember his face. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're to do. When we're faced with those situations that are scary, that do create fear. That's what Moses did by faith. He glanced at Pharaoh, but he kept his eyes on God. Fear is conquered by greater fear. If you're a note taker, write that down, because that's true. Fear is conquered by greater fear. 
That is how the people of God have always overcome threatening circumstances, by faith staring at the powerful yet invisible power of God. That's how Abram overcame the fear of rescuing Lot when he went down with 318 men to get him from the consolidated army of five kings. How did he do that? By faith. How did Joshua enter the promised land that was peppered with powerful kings? By staring at a more powerful king. How did young David, how did he get the fearlessness to walk out against Goliath? How did he do it? Nobody else would. He was staring at a more powerful king. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's fearlessness came from to step into the furnace, right? They said it right before they stepped in. But if not, my God, who you don't see, who is invisible, will save us. That's how all the prophets encouraged the kings that they went into, that God sent them to, if you think about it. When the, when the kings were threatened by an outside superpower, God would send a prophet into that king to help him to stare at the more powerful power, him. In our call to worship, Brother Ed here read from Isaiah 40. I want to read you a little bit more. This is what Isaiah said to his king. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Can you imagine talking to a king like that? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He's really setting this next line up. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So, king, look out and see the 185,000. They're like grasshoppers. That's what he's saying. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness? King, you're scared. Stare at the more powerful sovereign. Brothers and sisters, there will come a time when upholding the word of God. Let me slow down. There will come a time. Maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not in yours, maybe. There, but there will come, become a time when upholding biblical truth even the, the seemingly innocuous one that we say when we witness that Christ is the only way, that that will become hate speech. Mark my words. It might not be called hate speech. It might be called something else. But it will be called something, and we will be able to be prosecuted by it. And you, like Moses before you, will have to fear the, the king's edict. There's the edict. What happens? When that happens, by faith, do what Moses did. Stare at the one who is displayed in Scripture as seated on a throne in Revelation 4 with peals of, of thunder and lightning coming from it. Have that picture in your mind. Or perhaps the picture in Habakkuk 3. Stare at the one who looks, looks, says God looked 
and made the ancient mountains crumble. Stare at that God. Or stare at the one who always appears in Scripture as what? Storm and cloud. Stare at the one who upholds everything by the power of his word. We studied that not a couple months ago, Hebrews 1.3. He actually keeps things from flying apart. Stare at the one whose eyes are like blazing furnaces and a sword coming out of his mouth. That's Revelation 19. The reformer John Knox was once asked how he so boldly confronted the Roman Catholic queen. And he said this, One does not fear the queen of Scotland when one has been on his knees before the king of kings. He glanced at the queen of Scotland, but he stared at the king of kings. Second hallmark we see here by faith of faith is that faith embraces a harder life. Faith creates fearlessness, but it also embraces a harder life. We see that in verses 24, 25, and 26. There we read, By faith Moses, when he has grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ or the disgrace of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. One of the most intriguing historical mysteries of the 20th century surrounds a woman named Anna Anderson. She was fished out of a river in Berlin in 1920 after a failed suicide attempt. Shortly after her recovery, she began claiming that she was none other than the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov, the daughter of the last czar of the Russian royal family. This was a staggering claim since nearly a decade earlier under the Bolshevik Revolution, the entire Romanov royal family was taken to a barn in Siberia and shot and executed. Her claim, however, gained a lot of notoriety since there had always been a rumor circulating that Anastasia had been smuggled out. Anna took her claim to the court in Germany and had one of the longest-running court cases in German history from the 1930s to the 1970s. In it, she argued and sued for her rightful name, her title, and the royal inheritance. For nearly 40 years, she refused to let go of the hope that that would one day be restored. Let me put it to you another way. For most of her life, she refused to agree that she was not royalty. How different from Moses, right? By faith, he chose to lay all that aside and embraced a harder life. I think that moment came in Exodus chapter 2 when, when it says he went out when he was grown. He went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, 
Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. If you listen closely, you heard that he considered the Hebrews his own people. How did he know that? Well, if you know the story, you know that after they hid him, his parents, they put him in a basket and sent him down the river and, the, and the, his sister followed and the Pharaoh's daughter saw him and took him out. And, and the daughter suggested that the baby need to be nursed and took him back to his own mother to be nursed and raised. And he stayed there for years. Being taught by his mother about the one true God. The history of his people. The creation story. The flood narrative. The choosing of a people through Abraham. The lives of Isaac and Jacob. The journey of Joseph. How they all got down here. It's through Joseph that we got here. And the rise of a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. She taught him all these things. And then later, he was taken back to the royal palace. By, he was educated and he grew up into a man there. And he was given the title, son of the daughter of Pharaoh. It's actually a title, son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He was given a royal title. But one day, he went out to watch his people in labor and saw one of them being beat. And he made a choice, a sinful choice. He committed a sin while making the choice. That's clear. But he made a choice. In that moment, he sided with the people of God. He sided with God. He chose to reject. He knew what he was doing. He chose to reject the royal title. He voluntarily chose to leave the royal palace and be mistreated with his people. He chose to reject the comforts and pleasures of all that Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's palace could give him. In other words, he chose a harder life. And that's what faith, brothers and sisters, does sometimes. It brings us to those forks in the road. Puts before you two plain choices. Easy or hard. Ephesians 2.8 teaches us that by grace you have been saved through faith... And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. When God gives you the gift of faith, he's actually putting you at a fork in the road. One of my pastors in Massachusetts that I sat under, Charlie Wingard, he said something in a sermon offhandedly. It wasn't a major point, he just said this, and I wrote it down, and I want to read it to you because it's, it's stuck with me, and it's nothing profound. But he said these words. He said, when you become a Christian, you are voluntarily adding difficulty to your life that was not there before. If your life was difficult, then you're just adding more with the promise of rejection, persecution, and sacrifice. Not profound, but absolutely true. Absolutely true. Jesus in John 15 told his disciples, if the world hates you, they're going to hate, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. If they, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Because, because a slave is not above his master. 
That is the fork in the road that living by faith always presents. Love or hate, acceptance or rejection, Jesus' reputation or your reputation, comfort or persecution, life of ease or embrace of a harder life. And we have to be responsible with that truth in two ways. First of all, we have to be responsible with that truth when we share the gospel with somebody. We have to be responsible with that. We have to tell them about that. Jesus, when he was at the, his most popular, it was probably around Luke 14, crowds were following him everywhere. And one day he stopped and he turned around and he told them two parables. The parable of the building a tower and the parable of going to war. And he said, listen, nobody, nobody starts building a tower without counting how much it's going to cost him to complete that tower. That would be silly. And, and then he goes, no one would go to war once you know the, how many people the enemy has if you don't think you have enough people to conquer them. In other words, he was saying, you have to stop and count the cost of going forward. Many times in peacetime, the armed forces of the United States make enlistment attractive through recruitment posters that may emphasize getting financial help or a college education, right? That's kind of what we hear nowadays. But the harsh truth is that many times, what many times is downplayed during recruitment is that our nation's armed forces carry with it serious risk, serious, grave consequences. On October 12th of 2000, terrorists attacked a ship and killed 17 and injured dozens others while the ship was refueling in, in, the, in Yemen. We have to be careful not to just to tell people the good stuff about being a Christian. And there is great stuff. There is great news. You have salvation of your soul. You are, you are saved from eternity in hell. You have peace with God. You have hope in times of trouble. You have acceptance in a real family of God. You have perspective on your difficulties and hardships that other people don't have. You have a waiting inheritance in heaven. You have a loving community of faith. Those are just but a few, but we also have to tell them about the cost. That to live by faith means embracing a harder life. Like Moses did. But the second way we have to be responsible is this truth in our own lives. We just don't have to tell people the, that truth in their lives. You have to tell people that truth. You have to tell yourself this truth over and over and over again. Because in salvation, there will be faith forks in your road. As a matter of fact, God will place them there if they're not there naturally. And the biggie we all face continually in life is, and this is very high level, the world or Christ. That's the basic one. Are you going to choose the world or are you going to choose Christ? That's what Moses faced 
the fleeting pleasures of sin or embracing a harder life. What the world offers, that's what he was thinking, the world offers me everything. Or the life of faith and what that offers. Richard Phillips put it this way, Moses' choice is the choice all must make who would follow Jesus. The pleasures and treasures of Egypt or the affliction and fellowship of the cross. I like that. Pleasures and treasures of Egypt or the affliction and fellowship of the cross. We see this in the life of Abraham leaving Ur. We see that here in the life of Moses. We see it in the life of Paul, whose faith drove him to make a choice between the life of a cushy Pharisee with all the respect and adulation and ease of life he ever wanted, or a poor missionary, an itinerant preacher, who is dependent on the kindness of others. And this is the life of our Savior, isn't it? He gave up divine glory in heaven to, be, to come down here and take on humanity and limit himself voluntarily and live a perfect life, perfectly sinless life. That is a hard thing to do. Brother and sister, if you are struggling with sin, that's a good thing. But you know how hard it is to say no, right? You know how hard it is to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to pass that along. I'm not going to say that about that person. It's a hard thing to do. And Jesus did that perfectly throughout his whole life. And he earned heaven. But you know what? There's a fork in the road. We see that in Gethsemane. What are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to take the easy way out? The crown without the cross? Or are you going to take the hard way? And he took the hard way by dying a horribly painful death in our place, substituting himself for me. And he took the full wrath of God on himself, the wrath that I deserve, that Blake Brown deserves for the sin that I've, sins that I've committed. And he died in my place. He died so that I don't have to. And he rose again on the third day, proving everything he did and said was true. And he lives today. He lives today. So what about you? Have you faced your faith forks? How have you fared in your faith forks? Do you more often choose the pleasures and treasures of Egypt or the affliction and fellowship of the cross? I don't know about you, but when I face those in my when I face those forks, my flesh is is rushes right in. Does anybody understand? <laughs> When I'm facing, when I'm standing at that crossroads, my, my flesh rushes in and, and it will tell me anything and everything I want to hear in order not to take the harder road. It'll promise me the world. And I'm sure Satan is there encouraging that. I can convince myself that the easier path is the spiritual high ground. Have you ever done that? The easier path is the spiritual high ground. When I'm at those faith forks, I try to remind myself of something I learned in seminary. Really arcane Greek translation rule. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule. 
In my basic Greek class in my first semester of seminary, there was an option to come about 10 minutes early, and the Greek professor would do a devotional from the Greek text. I thought, well, that's a pretty cool thing. Let me go. I tried to attend, and I'll never forget one morning, he did a devotional in Titus 2.13 where he applied the Granville Sharp rule of Greek translation. I'm not going to go into the details, but when translating Greek and you come to a portion of Scripture that you can translate one of two ways, and you're being honest with the Greek, the Granville Sharp rule in essence says, take the harder translation. That's usually the better translation. That's usually the right translation. He applied that to our lives that morning by telling us that the Christian life is by definition definition a hard life. It demands that you make difficult choices throughout your life, he said. And he encouraged us that the Granville Sharp rule applies to our lives as well. He said, as a rule of thumb, the more difficult path is usually the right one. Not always, but it's a rule of thumb. And I want to encourage you to keep that rule of thumb in the back of your mind as you stand at your faith forks, which you will stand at. Looking at the pleasures and treasures of this world on the one hand and the affliction and fellowship of the cross in the other. Lastly and briefly, we have to realize here also, and lastly, that the ultimate hallmark of faith is that faith conquers certain death. Faith conquers certain death. We see that in verses 28 and 29. It says, By faith he kept the Passover, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Both of these short accounts have one thing in common that I want to draw out. The people were faced with certain death, but overcame it with faith. You see that in verse 29 in reference to Exodus 14 when the people had their backs up against the wall. They were there at the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go and they had the Egyptian army bearing down on them. And they were like, we're dead. We have no weapons and this is the best army in the world. And God made a way out by opening the Red Sea and they went through by faith. They trusted that the waters wouldn't crash down on them. And they got through. But I think the second half shows that the waters do crash down on those of God's enemies. They pass through by faith. Secondly, in verse 29, 28 is a reference to uh, Exodus 12, the, the Passover. The people again had their backs up against the wall. Here comes the last plague. It's going to kill every firstborn. The plagues, some of the plagues before only afflicted the, the Egyptians. This one is everybody. Your firstborn is going to die. The angel of death is coming. The destroyer of the firstborn is coming. And the Israelites had nowhere to go. Their firstborn was going to die too. But God made a way out. By putting the blood of a perfect lamb over the doorpost. You do that and you will live. And those that showed faith and trusted 
and put that blood on their doorpost lived. Brothers, sisters, that same pattern is true in our lives right now. Every person ever born has their backs up against the wall. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The way you get paid for, as James says, even one sin is you die. And not just physically. He's talking here about spiritual death. And that means you're away from God. You're not in God's presence for eternity. We call that colloquially hell. You're not with the one who is light. You're in utter darkness. You're not in the one who gives relationship. You're never in relationship again. See, what the Bible says is that our backs are up against the wall, not by a body of water or a plague, but by eternity. And God has opened a way out through his son. You know why we take communion every week? It's because it reminds us that we have a way out. That's what the, the bread in the, in the juice signify. His body in blood. On, on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he, he took the bread and he wanted to, to relate this to them. And he said, he, said, he broke it and he, he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. He was saying, I'm giving you a way out. And it's through me. If you trust me and my work and what my perfect life, not your perfect life, my perfect life. If you trust in my perfect life, my body will be broken, not yours. I will die, not you. I will take the wrath of God, not you. That's what this bread represents. So as we take it this morning, I want to encourage you to be thinking about the way out that Jesus has provided.